0: You're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit bentreechurch.com. Well, um, it's pretty obvious I am not Pastor Paul. Uh, Pastor Paul was uh, actually under the weather. And so this is an unscheduled stop on the uh, the sermon train, where as we've been going through the Gospel of John, we're going to take a little break uh, from that today. Uh, and we're going to obviously go to second Corinthians chapter two uh, that Ed read for us just a little bit earlier, but just want to tell you that that Pastor Paul seems to be doing well but is feeling under the weather, and so he's not here today and so I got the uh, the, the pinch hit text message yesterday to come in and and preach today and so with a, a little bit of time to prepare but not a whole lot, I decided to go back into the archives and pull out something that i've that I've taught on before. And I'll be honest with you, when you when you're in a moment like that and I'm looking back through like different sermons that I've preached and thinking to myself, like what, what would be beneficial for Bentry? What should I preach at Bentry? And and going through this entire you know, kind of decision making process of praying and seeking the Lord and trying to figure out like, you know, what is the thing that I should teach on? And I landed on on this message actually for a couple of reasons. One is because this message is in large part about decision making. <laughs> And as I was struggling to make a decision about what exactly I should do, uh, I decided that, hey, maybe I should preach the message to myself about trusting in the Lord's goodness whenever you make a decision and that he'll use whatever it is we do in our life for his own glory and for our good in that process. And also because in my time uh, in ministry and, and doing a lot of different things on that front of working with youth and people that are in college and just having people over to our house and sitting down for dinner and talking to them, one of the things that that keeps coming up is is this message. I have used these concepts to counsel Christians over and over again. And so what I'm going to talk about today is not anything uh, particularly mind-blowing or out there. Uh, If you actually want to do some further reading, I would commend the book to you, Uh, Just Do Something by Kevin DeYoung. Uh, a fantastic book that lays out these principles that I'm going to touch on today. Uh, and it was in reading that book and then just in my daily devotion time reading through 2 Corinthians chapter 2 where the kind of the lightning struck, right? I've been reading and thinking about these different ideas and then I read 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and it was it was one of those moments where it was like, "Oh my goodness." This has been here all along, right? And now I read it today and I'm seeing it with fresh eyes. And so that's what we're gonna look at today is what exactly is happening in Second Corinthians chapter two and, and more particularly, why the Apostle Paul acts the way that he does. Why the Apostle Paul makes decisions the way that he does. I'm actually gonna pray for us one more time, uh, especially with Pastor Paul being out and then we'll, we'll launch into it. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the opportunity to come and to study your word. And so, God, we just pause right now to lift up Pastor Paul. Father, we pray that you would be with him, that, uh, Lord, as he receives medication, that it would work uh, in the way that it's supposed to. God, we thank you for the intricacies of the way that you've created the human body, the minds that you've given us to be able to study medicine so that we can counteract the effects of the curse. Lord, that that sickness and sin and sorrow and death are all effects of the curse, and, and you've taken care of all of them. You've given us the arts and sciences so that we can combat those things here on this earth, but more importantly, you've given us your son, Jesus, so that in him, everything will be made right one day, and so we look forward to that day. But here and now, Father, we pray for your blessing on Pastor Paul as he continues to recover. We pray for your blessing on this time. We recognize that this was not outside of your schedule. This may not be what we planned for today, Lord, but you're sovereign over it all. And so we give this time to you in Christ's name, amen. Well, my name is Wade Williams, and I'm one of the shepherding elders here at Bent Tree Church, uh, and so we're delighted. We always take this time very seriously when it comes to the preaching of God's Word, so to be able to come up on short notice and, and talk through this is, uh, again, not something that we take lightly. And so I spent a lot of time yesterday just kind of pouring over these notes that I've had before Uh, And thinking about what what really fits best for us here at Bent Tree. And so I think that that this is something that could be beneficial to us all. So we'll dive right in. I'm going to reread verses uh, 12 and 13 as we get started here. And I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. It says, When I came to Taurus to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Okay, and so this is a moment in Paul's writing to the church at Corinth where he really he gets autobiographical for just a minute here. We know that Paul went on many missionary journeys. The book of Acts outlines a lot of those missionary journeys. He traveled extensively sharing the gospel, preaching and teaching in different towns. And so at times it it seems almost like there's this supernatural way that Paul moves through the world, right? He covers so much ground. One of the most influential people to have ever lived, even from secular scholars vantage point, the apostle Paul is a master influencer. Setting up towns and different kind of hubs where he would go and do ministry and send people out. Just a brilliant man led by the Lord and all of these things. And so when he gets autobiographical here, and we hear the words that Paul says, I would would challenge you that most Christians today, if they heard this, would probably look sideways at Paul. Could you imagine walking up to and talking to a group of your Christian friends and telling them that you moved or that you left this ministry and went to another ministry, and you said to them something like this, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, that you could say to a group of Christian friends, yeah, God opened a door of ministry for me in Taurus. It was clear. It was an open door for ministry, but I left. What? You can't, you can't do that. You can't just walk away from an open door of ministry, Paul. What made you think that that was Okay. And I dare say, if you were talking to any Christian today and you asked them the question, what made you think that was okay? You would be expecting something like this. Well, in my prayer time, I really, really just felt like I heard an audible voice from God that told me to leave Taurus and go to Macedonia. Or some Christians today might say, I read a random Bible verse and it had the town named Macedonia in it. And so I went, right? But Paul says it this way, my spirit was not at rest. And I remember talking to this about a friend. He was like, yeah, his spirit, it was spiritual. His spirit wasn't at rest. I was like, okay, granted, why was his spirit not at rest? Because I did not find my brother Titus there. Wait, wait, The Apostle Paul is telling us that he left an open door of ministry and went somewhere else because he missed his friend? because he missed his friend? Is that legit? Can, can you do that? Can you move with that kind of freedom as a Christian? Are you so bound up in your conscience that, that you really believe you need the audible voice, you need something written in the clouds, you need a dream, you need a random Bible verse to feel the freedom? to move the way that Paul did? Would it have been wrong for Paul to stay with an open door ministry? Absolutely not. Was it wrong for him to go? No, it wasn't. And the reason that Paul could do this, and this this is what I'm gonna put before you, is, is the way that Paul understood the goodness and the sovereignty of God over all of creation, that, that mindset and that knowledge of Paul understanding at a deep-rooted level of who exactly God is and what it means to follow the Lord to where he could say, yeah, there's an open door for ministry, but I miss Titus, and so I'm going to Macedonia. And be perfectly at peace with that decision. Look at what he says in verse 14. He made that this is almost like he knows they're going to have an objection, and he needs to explain himself a little bit here, Right? He left and went to Macedonia, verse 14, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. And so to help us understand this, Paul alludes to a triumphal procession. And so I'm gonna spend a little bit of time here talking about what exactly that is and, and what some of these things mean because it is a very, very sharp image for the people in Paul's day. They would know exactly what Paul was talking about. But as you read verse 14, there's kind of three different ways that it shows up. And so depending on what translation you have of your in your Bible, verse 14 may look a little bit different to you. Okay, so the one I just read from the ESV says this, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Other versions may say something like this, thanks be to God who in Christ always triumphs over us. God who in Christ triumphs over us. Or a third way that it could show up is thanks be to God who in Christ always always causes us to triumph. Okay, so you, you see the juxtaposition of how these things are laid out with different trans, translations? One of them is saying that Christ is causing us to triumph. Another one is saying that Christ has triumphed over us. And then you have this idea of a triumphal procession. And so it can be a little bit confusing of what exactly the apostle is getting at here. But this is, this is imagery that's really taken primarily, I would say, in Paul's time from the Roman Empire. And this idea of a triumphal procession is actually what would happen when a king went out to battle and won the battle and came back. And so when Paul says that we're a part of Jesus' triumphal procession, then there it really is both things. And I think that's kind of captured in what the ESV says of he leads us in triumphal procession because on one hand, in order to be a part of a triumphal procession, it usually means that you were defeated by the king, right? And on another hand, it means that you are now under the lordship of that king. And so it is true that, that first, Christ has to conquer our sinful and rebellious hearts. He triumphs over us. But when we've been won over to his side and we begin to fight under the banner of Christ, then he triumphs through us, or we triumph in Christ, so it's, it's one of these things where simultaneously we're seeing that we are conquered by Jesus, right? He comes in, takes over our lives in a way that is beautiful and glorious, and then because of that, we now conquer through Jesus. And so the theologian Alexander McLaren said it this way, to be triumphed over by Christ is to triumph with Christ. And so Paul has this understanding of what's happening here. And so he pulls out that image of a triumphal procession and says like, hey, this is what our life really is. I can leave Taurus and go to Macedonia because my entire life is part of Jesus' triumphal procession. In Roman tradition, the kings, like I said, would come back from battle and they would have behind them just slaves all of the people that they had taken as prisoners of war, their conquering army, and the conquering general would lead the way with a trail of people behind them coming back to show the great victory that they 've had in battle and so I actually had the opportunity to go to Rome over spring break um, and while we were there, we went and visited the roman forum and so Brea and I are, are walking around in the Roman forum and I'm I'm this nerdy guy, right? Because the first time I preached this message was in like 2016, and so that idea of the triumphal procession has like been on my mind ever since. And so to go to Rome and to see the Roman Forum, so this is this is the space where ancient Rome, um, really, it was kind of the city center. Of ancient Rome. This is where all the, you know, political and uh, social, economic life of the city was in here. These buildings over here are actually like an open air courtyard where people would come to bring civil cases and all of these different things. It was just a bustling city. But one of the things that is really interesting about the Roman Forum is that we're walking in and there are these two arches on either side. And You can Google this when you go home, but one of the things that they call these, and and they're not just in Rome, there's some in France, there's some in South America, but these arches are actually called triumphal arches, or triumphant arches, because this is actually what would happen. When they came back from Rome, or from from battle, they would come into Rome, this giant city city of the Forum, and this over here is the Arch of Titus, close to the Colosseum. And they would begin by walking through the Arch of Titus with all of the slaves to begin this giant parade that showed off the pomp and circumstance and the, the victory of the general who was leading all of these people through. And the interesting thing about the Arch of Titus is it was built in AD 70. Now, for anyone who's, who's maybe a biblical scholar in the room, AD 70 has a lot of significance, Because that is the year that the Emperor Titus, the Arch of Titus was built. He came back from sacking Jerusalem. And the destruction of Solomon's temple was in AD 70. And so when he got back, they actually used Jewish slaves from that triumphal procession, from that time of conquer to build the arch on the far right side of the screen there which is the Arch of Titus. And as time went on, about 200 years later they built the second arch and their parades of roman victory would take place through the city center here from one triumphal arch to the other and the jewish, jewish historian josephus actually writes about the the triumphal procession that took place okay when titus the emperor was coming back from sacking jerusalem and he made it back around the year ad 70 Okay, So I want you to just, if you if you want to close your eyes, that's fine, but I just want you to imagine the imagery that the Apostle Paul is using here and how meaningful it would be to the Christians in Corinth when they hear that imagery. These are the things that would be on their mind. This is what they would see with their mind's eye when Paul says, Jesus is leading us in triumphal procession. What does it look like? This is how the Jewish historian Josephus described it. Imagine with me. Now it is impossible to describe the multitude of the shows as they deserve and the magnificence of them all. Such indeed as man could not easily think of as performed, either by the labor of workmen or the variety of riches or the rarities of nature for almost all such curiosities as the most happy men ever get by piecemeal were here, one heaped on another. And those both admirable and costly in their number all brought together on that day demonstrated the vastness of the dominations of the Romans. For for there was here to be seen a mighty quantity of silver and gold, and ivory, contrived into all sorts of things, and did not appear as carried along in pompous show only, but as man may say, running along like a river. Imagine the parade, the gold, the silver, the men, the slaves, the horses the conquering general, the rose petals raining down from the high floors, and it moves not like it's just pomp and circumstances, but it flows like a river. Impossible to describe the multitude of shows as they deserve. Now, I want you to envision that, that image, that idea of being led in such a beautiful procession and a clear demonstration and show of force of the conquering general that Paul says that when we're in Jesus, everywhere we go in life is that. Everywhere we go in life is that. And that's why I can be in Taurus and be a part of this beautiful triumphal procession that is exclaiming the glories of Jesus Christ, or I can leave there and I can go to Macedonia, but guess what happens when I go to Macedonia? I'm still a part of the same declaration of Christ conquering lordship as I would be if I was at Taurus, we're always in it. And this is instructive for the way that we live our our lives. Is it, could, could you envision yourself, can you envision yourself as one who is literally being led through all of life as having been conquered by Christ and therefore conquering with Christ? As one who is, whose whole life is to demonstrate the beauty and the glory and the majesty of Jesus as he leads us along. And so because Paul had that vision for the way that he was living his life, he felt the freedom to leave a fruitful ministry and to follow his friend Titus. And so the way that we go is important. Look at verse 15. As a part of the triumphal procession, how do we actually live into that? What does that actually look like? What does it mean for us as Christians? If we're gonna envision ourselves as part of that marching forth of Jesus' kingdom, what does it really look like? Well, Paul says in verse 15, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Paul is clear that as we go, the way that we live our life is a demonstration to other people. To those who are perishing, when we give a a kind answer to a sharp rebuke, When our speech is seasoned with salt, when we're sharing the truth of the gospel with them, we become the aroma of Christ. To some that are already dead, to their death. It's a testimony to the fact that they will not inherit eternal life. But to others who are gonna be made alive in Christ, our testimony, the way that we're living, is one of the things that God uses to bring them to life. And so, whenever we're walking throughout all of our lives, I would submit to you that when it comes to decisions that you're making, where you plant yourself is not nearly as important as what you do in the place where you currently are. How we go is more important than where we go. And I think this was key to Paul's ability to say, listen, I can be in Taurus and preach the gospel and be the aroma of Christ. That's fine. Or I can go to Macedonia and I can preach the gospel and be the aroma of Christ. It's fine. It's fine. It's not as important where I am. What's really important is the way that I'm living and how I'm carrying out my faith in that place. How we go is more important than where we go. And you may, you may have in your mind like a counter example right now of like, wait, 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 wait. But is it? There are certain times when God may call a person to a particular place. We'll go Old Testament. We'll think about Jonah, right? Being called to Nineveh. It was a very specific call of a very specific place where he was supposed to go, and he didn't go. But let me kick it back to you and say, how we go is more important than where we go. Jonah's disobedience was rooted in the fact that he didn't want the people at Nineveh to hear the gospel. He wasn't planning to be the aroma of Christ. That was the issue with Jonah. Jonah. God gave him a specific call to a particular place. Yes, that may happen every now and then. But when it does, if someone doesn't go, it's more of a problem with the fact that they don't want to live as the aroma of Christ. But for the majority of us, when it comes to where exactly we live, what job we work, or even young people in the room, who exactly we're gonna marry, More fundamental questions are really the way that we're going to live, how we're going to act and perform in our job, and the commitment and the way that we're going to be as a spouse. Sometimes more important than where we're going to live, what job we're going to work, and who we're going to marry. It's about the commitment to doing it in a way that honors God. And I've talked to many Christians who are unsure of all of those things which is why I've constantly used this to counsel Christians to say, listen, you need to be more focused on being exactly who God has called you to be and living that out no matter where you are than spending all of your days fretting and agonizing and having anxiety over, well, when I graduate from college, should I go and teach or should I go and be an engineer? I'm more concerned with the type of teacher you're gonna be and the type of engineer you're gonna be than I am with which one of those professions you pick. The way that we honor God in our decisions many times is way more important than which particular decision we make. And so I'll I'll tell young people all the time, I was like, I know what God's will is for your life. For everybody in the room, I know what God's will is for your life. Now, I did not hear an audible voice from God. I did not pick out a random Bible verse. I did not see anything written in the sky, but I've read the Bible. And and most people become extremely disappointed if I'm talking with a young man and he says, should I marry this girl or not? I don't know what God's will for my life is, Wade. I say, I know what God's will for your life is. And you can imagine the excitement. He's like, great, he's gonna tell me. Do I buy the ring, pop the question, or no? And then sometimes there's a, there's a disappointment But I, when I tell them what God's will is for their life. But did, did you know the Bible actually says what God's will for our life is? There are a couple of verses in the Bible that say, this is the will of God. And they're both in 1 Thessalonians. So if you would, flip with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 3 For this is the will of God that you be sanctified and abstain from sexual immorality That's God's will for your life Cut and dry Again, First Thessalonians chapter five, 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is God's will for your life. And it, I'll never forget, counseling a young man who was asking the marriage question and I read these verses to him and he was like, but wait, am I supposed to marry her or not? I said, well, let me ask you this. When you, you want to know if it's God's will or not, when you marry her, will it help you be sanctified? Will you grow to be more like Christ if you marry this girl? Is this, is this girl the kind of girl who's going to help you rejoice always, pray without ceasing and give thanks in all circumstances? If the answer is yes, then marry her. If the answer is no, then don't. We know this is what God's will for your life is. And I don't want it to be a letdown. I want you to see the incredible amount of freedom that God has given us. So many times in counseling Christians, we are so obsessed with, do I take this job or do I take that job? Do I decide to buy this house or do I decide to buy that house? And we fret and fret and fret as though God our Father were sitting in heaven waiting for us to make the wrong decision so he could strike us down. That's not the way that a loving father deals with his children. God is not playing hide and seek With his will, he's made it plain. Be sanctified, rejoice, pray, give thanks, and then buy whichever house you want to. Take the promotion, don't take the promotion. It's about the way that we live our life. And this is where the wording that Paul uses is crucial. Look very closely at what Paul says when he says, we are the aroma of Christ to God. Aroma. For a lot of Christians, that has a lot of meaning. And if you think back to even Old Testament times, that whenever there was a sacrifice given, the Lord would even say in the Old Testament, there were certain things that they were supposed to burn and there were incense they were supposed to burn in the altar. And the Lord would say that it would rise up to him as a pleasing aroma. And then Ephesians chapter five, verse two says this, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering And sacrifice to God. The aroma of Christ that Paul calls us to is the aroma of sacrifice. And we become the aroma of Christ that rises up to God and to the world, we are the aroma of Christ, to the world around us when we live a life of sacrifice and when the purpose of our days is to walk out in God's triumphal procession and not simply to seek out our own desires in everything that we do. When we're led in triumphal procession, we are spreading the aroma of Christ. We're calling people to repent and believe in the gospel because here's why. Paul says it, when it comes to Jesus' triumphal procession and who he is as a conquering king in general, there is no middle ground. There is no middle ground. Either you are with him or you are against him. You are with him or you are against him. And so in verse 16, to one, we're a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, we're a fragrance from life to life. And so the question for every single human being is, will you surrender yourself as one who has been conquered by Christ so that you can triumph with Christ? Or will you refuse him? Will you refuse him and be slain by the conquering general? And this is the message that we take with us no matter where we go. And it's kind of heavy, which is why I think Paul says what he says at the end of verse 16 into 17. This is the message that we carry. This is the life that we live. This is the way that we're supposed to be walking in triumphal procession, displaying the glories of Christ to the watching world, spreading the fragrance of Christ everywhere we go. And so it begs the question, who is sufficient for these things? Who's enough? And it's rhetorical. None of us are. But God has made us worthy. God has called us to do this in spite of our inabilities. And so Paul talks about the way that we go. Remember, I've talked so much about it's how we go that's important. And so Paul alludes to that in verse 17 when he says, hey, the way that we go, how we go about our lives is like this. We're not like so many Peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. We're not chasing money. We're not chasing fame. We're not peddlers of God's word in that way. No, our desire is to be the aroma of Christ to the nations. And so we can live in freedom if our mindset, if what we're trying to do is to walk forward and honor God, we have the freedom to make decisions and to live in our lives without the fear that we're going to disappoint our Heavenly Father. So here's some questions that I would put before you if you're getting ready to make a big decision. The question really is, is it sinful or not? And if it's not sinful, Christian, please have the freedom. Take Take a cue from the Apostle Paul. Have the freedom to be a child of God who walks in a manner worthy of the gospel. Ask questions like this Am I choosing this because I love money? Is that the only reason I want this promotion? Is that the only reason I want to change jobs just because I love money? Am I choosing this because of status and pride? Am I hanging out with this person and not that person because they'll help my social status? I look better hanging out with them. Do I want this job instead of that job because the title's better? Is Is that what I'm seeking? Am I choosing this because I'm pleasing people? I'm afraid of what people are gonna think about me more than I am concerned about what God thinks about me. And am I choosing this because I just want my life to be easy? I just want my life to be easy or is my life gonna have the fragrant aroma of sacrifice? Which one will it be? Because if we can go through these questions and we can examine our hearts and we can say, hey, listen, I I did this. I really kind of wanna be a a teacher, potentially maybe at some point an administrator or I wanna be an engineer. God, I I don't know which one you want me to do. What am I supposed to do? I'll never forget a pastor walking me through those questions and saying, Wade, which one makes your heart sing? If there's no sinful motive in either either of these decisions, then which one makes your heart sing? And I said, I wanna teach. He said, then teach. Feel the freedom to follow where the Lord has called us. If we examine ourselves and be sure that we're not just seeking after sinful motives. Augustine of Hippo said it this way. This would be the best summary I could possibly give you. Love God, do whatever you please. Stay in Taurus. Open door ministry. Go to Macedonia. And Augustine elaborates on what he means here, and I think we can all kind of see it, but, but he does it so beautifully when he says, for the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. This is our call, to be conquered by Christ so that he will free us from vanity, that we would give ourselves up to Jesus And then, in the same measure in which we give ourselves over to him, we will be set free from the worst of all slaveries. To the love of money, to the fear of man, and the fear of the eternal abyss. You can march as one triumphing and being triumphed over by Christ when you join in his triumphal procession. And here's, here's the greatest thing about the triumphal procession, and this is why I say you're either in or you're out, because they would always end with going through the arch, going up onto uh, typically stairs that were leading into a palace, and the general who had, who had led the opposing army who had fought against the conquering general would be carried up in front of everyone and slain publicly to announce that This general reigns and this one does not. Do you see the imagery? We know from the book of Revelation that there will be a day when Jesus will absolutely conquer and vanquish Satan so that his rule and reign is no more and those who have aligned themselves with Christ are the only ones that will stand. We follow him in sacrificial love wherever we go until Satan, sin, and death are no more. And the seventh angel blows his trumpets and these words are spoken. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. We're with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the call that you give us to follow Jesus. Lord, that that you have overcome our sinful natures, that you have overcome our desire for things of the world, that you have conquered us through the love of Christ and made us new through the working of your Holy Spirit. And so now we march as ones who have been conquered by you. Lord, we're yours. And so we ask that you would use us that we would feel the freedom and the grace and the love of a father that tells us that if we follow you, Lord, we can do whatever it is that we feel called to. And I pray that we wouldn't see living for you as a burden, Lord, but as something that is freeing. And so God, we ask that you would lead us in triumphal procession, that we would see ourselves within The biblical narrative. We would see ourselves as part of the story, as ones who are called to go forth and to proclaim the excellencies of Christ and to be the aroma of Christ to a lost and hurting world. Would you help us in these things? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bent Tree Church. To get connected at Bentree and for more information, please visit bentreechurch.com.